Open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter number 3. John, chapter number 3. Chapter 2 ends with a very confusing situation that I'll be preaching on uh, within the next week or two. Uh, we come to chapter 3, that chapter that most of us are very familiar with because of, mainly because of verse number 16 that just about everybody has memorized. But in chapter number 3, we find the Lord as He is conversing with Nicodemus, a, a leader, a ruler among the Jews. And uh, as the Lord speaks about the new birth, Nicodemus responded in verse 12 by saying, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said unto him, art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Preachers often say, the last thing I want to do is to confuse you. So you might be surprised this morning whenever I say the first thing I want to do is, is to confuse you. I say that, I say that because certainly it doesn't apply across the board, but I say that to a large number of people because of the fact that what they believe is wrong and they don't know it. And... Uh, if you think you're right when you're not, and no one ever challenges you, you'll never change your mind. And so that's why I say, I want you to get so confused that you'll stop assuming that you're right, and that you'll start looking for the answers. Now let's face it, we're all confused about some things. Confused about things that we won't get straightened out until we get to heaven. And I, I, I just, you know, I've got a sneaking suspicion, as we'd say in the Ozarks, that, that whenever we do, we're all going to be kind of shocked that, that we were wrong about some things. Yeah. That's all right. That's all right. None of us understand everything about anything. But when it comes to the matter of salvation, we better be right. Amen. Or there won't be any discovery of new information in heaven because you won't be there. I don't know of any subject that I could preach on or anyone could preach on more important than the doctrine of salvation. But and I say that because of the fact that I don't know if anything more people's confused about than the matter of salvation. If you don't believe that, just stand out on a busy street corner and start asking people, you know, uh, how to get to heaven. Art Linkletter on his show, of course the kids don't know who Art Linkletter was, but uh, you old timers do. And uh, he asked a question one time, uh, to the audience, uh, how do you get to heaven? Took a survey among the people, and you couldn't believe all of the answers. Somebody said, well, you know, you got to be a good neighbor, and 
Somebody else said, well, you've got to keep all of the law. And everybody had an idea, you know. And one fellow said, I don't know, up the golden stairs. Whatever that means, you know. And that's just that shows the way that, that people are confused. The average person doesn't really have a clue when it comes to how a person is truly saved. And uh, the sad thing is you find the same thing a lot of times true in churches. If the estimates regarding the percentage of church members that are not saved, if those estimates are anywhere close to right, let me tell you, we have a crisis in America today. Not just America, but around the world. Because if that's true, we need a whole lot more preaching of the gospel and not less of it. I've... I know a lot of preachers, and over these past 52 years, I've known a lot of preachers. And uh, this is a subject of discussion among preachers a lot of times. And people will ask, you know, what percentage of church members do you think are really, truly saved? I was really shocked when someone as respectable as Billy, the late Billy Graham replied, and I can't remember the exact number, but it was somewhere up around 90% that he believed that actually 90% of all of the church members had never really truly been born again. Others say 80%, 75%. But I mean, that is amazing, folks, when you stop and think about it. I mean, even if you take the low conservative number. In comparison to that, and, and let's say 50% of the average church members have never really truly been born again. I say, we have a crisis. That is awful. That is terrible. And, and, and we, we live in a day that, you know, people want something new, something fresh, something different all of the time. And what we need more than anything is the old-fashioned, plain, simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's the only thing that's going to save anyone. Amen. So I'm going to get right to the point. If you are confused about the subject of salvation, I want to say something this morning that will convince you that you are confused because I want to challenge your beliefs in this regards. You see, just believing that, that everything is alright doesn't make it alright. Let me tell you, blessed assurance is harmful instead of helpful if what you believe is wrong. There are people that will argue with you till the sun goes down that they just know. They don't have any doubt about it whatsoever. They just absolutely know when they die, they're going to heaven. They know that and they call God their Father. But then whenever you really begin to delve into the issue as to how a person is born again, they don't have a clue. And so if we're going to discover whether we're right or whether we're wrong then we need to ask and answer some questions. And maybe the most fundamental of all of those questions might be this. What is the most basic, important difference between a true Christian and a non-Christian? The most basic, important difference between a true Christian and a non-Christian. 
As strange as it might seem, there are a lot of folks that are confused about this simple subject of salvation. And the number in their camp is growing all of the time. One of the reasons is, and I'm old enough to have witnessed this, for several years now, the greatest concern among a lot of preachers and churches has has been getting more numbers, building a bigger church. I mentioned this last week in a message, in fact, back you know, and bus ministries are a good thing. I'm not against bus ministries at all. But when you turn when you turn the Lord's church into a business, and whenever you begin to market what you're doing, as it were, just to build a name for the church, and you began to entertain the people just to get them there, you have all kinds of activities that you know will appeal to people, and they'll, they'll come to that. Naturally, they would. I mean, good night before I was saved, if they'd have had a, you know, if they'd have had a, a, a dance and free beer, I'd have been there. And the problem is, over the years, churches begin to compete one against another. They would, they would go out and court people as that as it were to get people to come in they would count them they would compare them churches were even having contests you know having super sunday this church versus that church you know to see which which one had the biggest attendance and of course usually the loser pastor had to do something silly like preach from the rooftop or some crazy thing like that. Anything to get attention because attention meant getting people there. And they do all of this without any real genuine concern as to whether or not people are really getting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what they did was to make make it all about them instead of Jesus. I say we've got a crisis on our hands today when we think about that. And I'm not going to be silent in that regards. Amen. People get so aggravated because we had somebody here, oh, it's been a year or so ago. They got so mad, they got up right in the middle of what I was saying and stormed out and I guess from what I was told, just pitched a fit outside uh, because they didn't like what I said because I mentioned someone by name. Well, I still haven't found anything wrong with that. I mean, if I saw a rattlesnake about to bite one of my kids, you know, I'd say there's a rattlesnake. I'd call it by name. I wouldn't say there's a pet lamb. It's a rattlesnake there. Then I'd do something about it. I'd get a garden hole and cut that sucker's head off. I wouldn't leave it there. And I think any preacher worth his salt, any preacher that cares anything about people and their salvation needs to warn the people, amen, about the false teachers. I'll save all of that for another day and I'll get 
real specific about some things that I'm not going into right now. But let me tell you, look, it doesn't even make sense for you to get mad at me about warning people about false teachers. Oh, Jesus got pretty blunt, didn't He? I mean, He got downright what some people would call rude. He didn't pull any punches whatsoever. So let's talk about what won't work. The Gospel of John begins with by dealing with this very issue that we're talking about. Chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now this is the same subject that the Lord was talking to Nicodemus about, and we'll get to that in a minute, where the Lord said, Ye must be born again. So we go right back to the very beginning of this gospel, and he tells us here that that he's writing for the very purpose of revealing the Lord Jesus Christ and telling us that we have to be born again. And notice he speaks here in the in the negative sense. He tells us that that it's by believing. Notice it's not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. So what won't work when it comes to salvation? Well, obviously, ethic descent will not work. He says here, it's not of blood. Now, by the way, that was a major issue in those days because many believed that they were safe from judgment just because they were Jews. We're God's special people. We're God's favored people. Abraham is our father. We don't need anything else. We've got our act together. They didn't realize that God doesn't have any spiritual grandchildren. And let me tell you, your parents or your grandparents might have been wonderful Christians, but that will not work for you. It's not ethnic descent, and notice it's not even expressing a desire. He says, nor of the will of the flesh. You can't will your way into the family of God. You can't hope your way into heaven. I mean, just wishing you were a millionaire wouldn't make you one. You could sit around all day, you know, just saying, well, I wish I was a millionaire. I'm going to, I'm going to believe that I'm going to be a millionaire. I'm going to work on my faith until I convince myself that I'm going to be a millionaire. But that wouldn't put one dollar in your bank account. And you can't will your way into heaven, you know. Just saying, well, I want to go to heaven when I die. I want to be a Christian. That won't do it. Nor will even exclaiming a decision. Now, now let me tell you, there, there is a decision involved in receiving Christ. But it's possible to make a decision about Christianity without making a decision for Christ. Now listen carefully. I said it's possible to make a decision about Christianity without making a decision for Christ. You know, there are some people that would would say in a heartbeat, 
I don't want to go to hell. And with a little bit of urging, you can even convince them sometimes, you know, to, to say a prayer. Many years ago, they had a lot of so-called soul-winning schools where they would coach church members to go out soul-winning. And By the way, we need to go out and knock on doors and tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've sat through some of those. I've read numerous books in that regards. And, you know, being a young preacher, I didn't want to miss out on anything. I went to those conferences and I wanted to learn all I could. Well, you go in there and you sit down and you always say something complimentary first. That's a nice picture on the wall. You know, find out where they're, where they're, where their interest is and start talking about that. And then whenever you get ready to leave, you know, you say, cool, you wouldn't mind, would you mind if we have a prayer before we leave? Oh, well, most of them, you know, are going to be gracious enough to say, well, yeah, you know, to pray, go ahead. And, and you take them by the hand and you start praying and and you say something to them, you address them. Now, you wouldn't want to go to hell if you died today, would you? Oh, no, I wouldn't want to go to hell. Well, you believe Jesus came into the world, don't you? Well, yeah, I believe Jesus came into the world. Yeah, I believe that. Well, if you'll repeat this after me, you can you can be saved and go to heaven. And then they say a little prayer and say, they'll, they'll stop. They'll break it down. You follow right after me and say this little prayer and you'll be saved. And so whenever they get through, they say to the person, now you're saved, aren't you? And some person, oh, I, don't, I don't know, I'm not sure. Well, what does the Bible say? Doesn't the Bible say, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved? And what the Bible says? Well, yeah, that's what you say the Bible says. I guess it does. I'm not going to debate that. But if the Bible says that and God doesn't lie, does he? Well, no, God doesn't lie. Well, if that's what the Bible says and God doesn't lie and you just said those words and that means you're saved. Now, when you want to get baptized... And finally, this poor fellow reaches the place he'll do just about anything just to get you out of the house. Now, I'm not trying to minimize the matter of prayer even. You know, I'm not in that camp of those that say that you ought not to ever even pray even in regards to salvation. I don't believe they've got it right at all. But I'm telling you that prayer is not the thing that saves you or anybody else. Prayer in and of itself is no better in regards to salvation than baptism is or church membership is. You know, a lot of people ask God to keep them out of hell, but they don't have any faith in Christ. They don't have any love for Christ. Their only concern is staying out of hell. And let me tell you, that won't work because That is out of love for self, not love for Christ. There's no concern about Christ in that. I remember back before I was saved, driving off of Interstate 44 between St. Louis and Springfield, going 70, 80 miles an hour in the 56 Ford station wagon, and I woke up in midair... And I don't know what all I was praying, but I was, you know, and I wasn't a praying kind of a person, but I sure didn't want to die when I hit the ground. 
You know, it's one thing to say, well, no, I don't, I don't want to die and I don't want to go to hell. But there are a lot of folks who would claim that, you know, that they believe that works do not save a person and yet they actually are guilty of teaching that very thing in regards to prayer. That you've got to, you've got to say this, this prayer. And so whenever you're depending on prayer, that just becomes another work like baptism or anything else. Works won't work. No kind of work will work. Nor will engaging in duty be enough to get you in heaven. By that, I mean that that each of us have certain duties, in other words, responsibilities, and our character is judged according to our attitude regarding those duties or responsibilities, you see. In addition to the moral rules, we also have duties that are related to other people, how we treat other people and so forth. And In other words, the things that Christians are expected to do. But you know, there's some people that have never made any profession of faith. They don't claim to be a Christian whatsoever, and yet they have more good works in that regards, more faithful to their duties than some Christians are. But that doesn't save them. My dad's favorite saying was whenever back before he made a profession of faith, and I tried to get dad to go to church, I was concerned about his salvation and I would urge him, come on, Dad, go to go to church, come and hear me preach. And he said, son, I don't need to go to church. I'm just as good as those people down there at church. And, and really, he was right. He's better than half of them. I mean, as far as a morally decent, good man, you know, he was just as good as they are. But that doesn't save them and it won't save you no amount of good works can save anyone let me tell you something else that won't work now listen carefully embracing doctrine won't work and this is where a whole lot of folks are confused because they have the idea that the mere acknowledgement of certain facts will save you let me tell you the devil knows the facts the Bible says, you know, the devil knows that there is one God. He understands that. He knows that. He knows who Christ is. And yet he is still the devil. He's still the enemy of God. So just knowing who Jesus is, just knowing what Jesus has done, is not going to save you. Salvation is more than embracing a creed or embracing a doctrine. It's more than giving your mental assent to a historical fact. Believe it or not, there are some people that believe one religion is just as good as another. And yet they claim to be Christians because this is their religion of choice. And so they've decided, you know, I'm, go- you know, I'm among all of the religions, all of them are equally good. We all worship the same God after all, they say. So it doesn't really make any difference what religion you choose. You just pick one that, you know, that you feel good about. And so I'm choosing the Bible and I'm going to, I'm going to be one of those Christians. Let me tell you, you're no more saved than a billy goat if that's your attitude. 
Nobody, listen, nobody, nobody is saved whenever they believe that Christianity isn't any different or isn't any better or more valid than the religions of this world that worship false gods. Jesus said, I am the way, not a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other way. There's no such thing as one religion being as good as another if you're comparing it to Christianity. Not only that, but embracing or experiencing a dream is not going to save you. You might be surprised if you knew what some people depended upon for their salvation. I've talked to people that had absolutely no understanding whatsoever as to the gospel no, no idea what the new birth was really all about. And yet they insisted that they were saved because of some experience. I'm talking about an emotional experience that they had had. I'll never forget my pastor, the only pastor that I ever had, telling me about a situation where a man in the community there was trying to convince him that he was saved. Now this fellow you know, this fellow wasn't a churchgoer or anything else, but whatever the, you know, whatever the case might have been otherwise, he claimed, I know that I know that I'm saved. And so the preacher asked him, how do you know you're saved? And he began to describe an experience where there was this clap of thunder and like a lightning bolt that came down and hit him right upside the head. And he said, it was God letting me know that, you know, that I'm saved. And Brother Hankins said, I don't believe a word of it. I don't believe what you said. You called me like said, I know. I, I, I just think you misunderstand. He said, if you'd told me it had hit you in the heart, I might have believed it. But you said in the head, let me tell you, salvation's not in the head, it's in the heart. It's not just a matter of acknowledging certain facts. And it's not just, you know, a matter of having some kind of uh, warm, fuzzy feeling because you had an experience of some kind. Salvation is an imagination. It's not just what you think. It's not education, what you know. It's not occupation, what you do. It's not reformation, what you don't do. It's not imitation, what you try to do. In other words, you can't try to just say, well, I'm going to be a Christian because I'm going to imitate the life of Christ. I'm going to try to, you know, I read the Bible, I see what he did, I'm going to try to do that, that makes me a Christian. No, look, pretending you're a cop doesn't give you any authority. And trying to act like you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. And it's not contribution that is what you give. It's not even your reputation that is what other people think about you. None of those things are going to work. None of those things are going to get you into heaven. So what? What works? How is it? That we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're a child of God and that if we die, we'll go to hell. How can we know? None of those things will work. You can't get yourself into heaven. Others can't get you into heaven. Now, these folks that believe, you know, that, that baptism is essential for salvation, what you're saying, you know, remember what, 
What he said in the very first chapter, it's not of the will of man. It's not of the will of man. In, in, in other words, your salvation is in the hands of someone else. Reminds me of a person that years ago, true story. It was going to a church of Christ. And if you're familiar with them, you know that they teach you have to be baptized in order to be saved. And he was going to a church of Christ and, uh, and expressed his desire to become a Christian. And uh, knowing that they, you know, that his salvation in his mind depended upon him being, him being baptized, you know, he, he said, I want, I want to do this as soon as possible. So we can't do it as soon as possible. We've got to put it on the calendar and the schedule, which was several weeks down the road. He said, you mean, <laughs> you, you mean I, I, I want to be saved? I want to become a Christian and I've got to wait till then? They said, yeah, you, you can't be baptized right now. That's putting your salvation in the hands of a man and it's up to him to decide. What if the preacher has the flu that day and doesn't show up? You see, it doesn't make any difference what, what work it might be. Nothing will work. Nobody else can get you into heaven. You can't get yourself into heaven. What works? Well, John chapter 3, verse 7, I don't think you can improve on what Jesus said to you. He said to Nicodemus, notice, you must be born again. You must be born again. And let me tell you, you can't do that for yourself. Salvation is of the Lord, the Bible says. Notice back in chapter 1 again, verse 13, notice he speaks about being born of God. Born of God. This is something that God does. That those who are spiritually dead, and that's true of every unsaved person, if you're here today, you can be baptized in every creek in the county till every tadpole knows you by your first name. You can join every church in town. And I'm telling you, you're still not saved even after you've done all of that. After you've exhausted everything that you've tried to do, you're still no more Christian than, than you were before you started all of that. Because you can't do anything in order to make yourself a Christian. It's of the Lord. You are spiritually dead. And you need a spiritual birth that gives you eternal life. Man, you know, can't produce life himself. But God can impart life. And that's what salvation is. It is the impartation of spiritual life by the Holy Spirit. Now listen to me. It's by the Holy Spirit. But it's because of the grace of God. And it's through faith. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. And then he said, It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Oh, we could get, you know, if, if salvation was based on something that I could do, I could get up to heaven and hop and skip down Hallelujah Avenue, kicking up gold dust under my feet, saying, Hey, look at me! I, I made it! I did it! Just look at me! I'm somebody! 
No, you're nobody, and I'm nobody. We're nobodies. But God can make a somebody out of you if you're willing to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's what this all boils down to. And the Bible is very clear about this. You know, I said at the very beginning, these Jews were so confused about their spiritual condition. If you don't believe that, read chapter 8 when you get home. And you have this debate going on back and forth between the Jews and Jesus. And they were confident. Abraham is our father. Jesus said, you know the truth and the truth will make you free. They said, oh, we've never been in bondage to anyone. We're the seed of Abraham. Don't you know who we are? Yeah, he did. He said in verse number 44, Ye are of your father the devil. The lust of your father ye will do. Well, he didn't pull any punches whatsoever. He came out swinging as it were. In other words, they were confused about their spiritual condition and Jesus, Jesus wanted them to know exactly where they stood. What would you think of a doctor if all of a sudden, I mean, you were, you were so sick that you couldn't even function. You go to the doctor and so the doctor runs some tests and he realizes that you have a cancer that's eating away at your body. But that doctor thinks, you know, I don't want to upset them. I don't want to spoil their day. I don't want them to dislike me. And so, you know, I, I'm, just gonna, I'm just gonna tell them, go home, take two aspirin and a glass of water, and in a few days, you know, things probably improve. You, you wouldn't want to go to a doctor that did something like that. You want somebody that's going to tell you the truth. You want somebody that's going to provide a remedy for whatever your problem is. And I'm telling you here this morning that the only remedy for a lost person is for them to put their faith in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. These Jews were so confused about this issue, but there's one man who got it. John the Baptist understood, and if you look down in the same chapter to verse 36, listen to what he says. He that believeth. Now, as I said, that's more than just your mental assent to historical facts. That word believeth is the equivalent of the Old Testament word trust. It's more than just acknowledging facts. It's trusting. You know, you could, uh, you could come up to a bridge... And stand there and look at that rushing water under the bridge and stand there and wonder if you ought to trust your weight to that bridge to get to the other side. And you could stand there however long and you look, you'd never get across until you trust the bridge. You know, you could try to calculate it all out. Well, I weigh X number of pounds, and I see that's made up of, you know, concrete and great big timbers and so forth. Yeah, I can probably make it across. You Look, you could look at it factually. You could even run tests on the concrete and all of the materials and everything and finally come to the conclusion, yeah, it could hold me. But you're still not on the other side until you commit Tell you trust that bridge to hold your weight and you put your foot down and go across. 
When he's talking about he that believeth, he's talking about somebody somebody that puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody says, well, preacher, don't you think you can be saved and, and not know it? No. If you can be saved and not know it, you could lose it and never miss it. You wouldn't know whether you got it or not. What are you talking about? You know, look, if we're saved by grace through what? Faith. Faith, trust, believe, whatever word you want to use. It all amounts to the same thing. If I place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm trusting Him to get me to heaven, why wouldn't I know that? I know I'm married. Nobody has to, you know, I, I've never walked down the aisle to, and said some preacher, you know, preacher, I, people have been telling me lately that I'm married. I don't know whether I am or not. No, I know I am. And I certainly know that I've been born again because I know the time and the place when the very moment that I put my trust in Jesus Christ, I didn't understand it all. I didn't understand hardly any of it. But I knew I was a sinner and nobody will ever be saved until they know they're a sinner regardless of what Joel says. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, they say, well, I just don't want to upset people. They all know they're a sinner. Yeah, but they, they have no idea what the consequences of their sinfulness, what, what they're going to be. I'm glad I... I'm glad when I went to church, there's a little old country church with a preacher that loved souls and loved the Lord and stood up and told me the truth. Ye must be born again. And explained to me that the way that I am born again is the same way, whether it's Nicodemus or John the Baptist or whoever it is, is through believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice he says here in verse 36, He that believeth on the Son... The person that has put their faith in the Son, trust in Him, notice, hath. That's present tense. It's not something you're going to get someday. It's not something that one of these days you're going to die and you're going to go to the pearly gates and they're going to weigh your good works and weigh your bad works. And if your good works outweigh your bad works, they'll let you into heaven. No, it doesn't work that way. If you're a child of God, you are just as saved now as you will be when you get to heaven. He that believeth on the Son hath, notice, everlasting life. If it's everlasting, then that'd be something I couldn't lose, right? I mean, it's everlasting, it's eternal life. I, I can't, I can't lose it. And here we got all of these people in different denominations who want to debate that issue. Well, you Baptists, you just, you know, you, you believe in this eternal security that once saved, always saved. Well, of course we do. We believe that we have received eternal life from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that, listen carefully. If you don't believe that, you're telling me that you're depending upon something you do for your salvation. And nobody will be saved by what they do. It's only by receiving what He has done that we can become a child of God. And then John the Baptist said this as he finished. He said, And he that believeth not, he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. 
You know, the Bible says if we don't believe, Jesus said that we are condemned already. It's like old Jonathan Edwards when he preached that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I wish I had time to tell you the story. But as he preached that sermon that brought revival to America, and when he preached that sermon, Jonathan Edwards was a man who had poor eyesight. He, he read his manuscripts. The building was dark and he's hovered over his manuscripts reading it word by word. You know, he, he wasn't someone that was, a, you know, a, a great preacher in that sense, uh, not somebody that showed a lot of emotion or depended upon any kind of psychological trickery to get people to walk down the aisle. And as he read his message, he began to describe how that a person who is condemned already is like hanging by a spider web over the gaping jaws of, of a burning hell. And the people literally began to weep and they began to run down the aisle. They began to cling to the pillars of the building for fear that they were going to fall off into a devil's hell. You see, it's not the ability of the preacher. It's not his personality. It's not his cute little stories. It's none of that. It's the plain, pure, simple gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. To who? To all those who believe, the Bible says. Let me ask you a simple question. Do you know, based on what the Bible teaches, I don't want you to say, well, preacher, I feel like I'm okay. I feel like if I died, I'd go to heaven. That doesn't mean anything to me. I'm talking about, do you know a time and a place in your life? I don't mean the exact date. I know, you know, when I was saved, but maybe you don't remember the date. You don't remember the time of day. But there was a time, an experience in your life where you became aware of the fact that you were a sinner in the sight of God. That you knew that according to God's Word that you are condemned already and that there is an eternal judgment awaiting you and you understood that Jesus Christ loved you enough that He came to earth, died on the cross, arose from the grave and ascended back to the Father to make a way for you and that you became a child of God, not because of anything you've done, but because of what He did. You just put your trust in Him. Do you know that has happened in your life? If you don't, this could be the most wonderful day, the most important day of your life. That you could become a Christian. I'm not going to ask you to walk down the aisle to get saved. I'm not going to ask you to be baptized to get saved. But I am going to ask you to do this. We're going to stand. We're going to give you an opportunity right where you are to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I don't care what you pray, how you pray, or whether you pray or anything. But that's a decision. As many as received Him, will you receive Him into your heart this morning and then get out of your seat and come and tell Brother Preston or I, I have trusted Christ as my Savior this morning and I want the world to know. Would you do that? While we stand and, and as we sing in just a moment, Father, this morning I pray that You'll bless Your Word.
Lord, that your Holy Spirit might move upon hearts today. Dear God, that not one unsaved person would leave this building without first of all receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, you'll remove every obstacle that Satan would put before them. I pray, Lord, that you would give them a holy boldness to come and to stand here this morning and let it be known that they've received Christ as their Savior. Lord, this morning, we just pray that you'll be glorified through the salvation of lost souls. For we beg it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, while we stand and as we sing together, would you come? Just as you can come to Him just like you are, regardless of who you are, what you've done. Jesus said, He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. spoken about uh, Bev's salvation experience. You know, when Bev was a little girl, before I helped corrupt her life, I guess you would say, I, she had attended church, a good Bible-believing church, and uh, had some awards that she had got for Sunday school and stuff like that. And uh, we started going together, and that was the end of the church going and what have you. But a strange thing happened. And that is that as bad as I was, God saved my old sin-blackened soul and changed my life completely. And I surrendered to preach. I was actually pastoring my second church at that time. We drove into Springfield during a revival meeting. And uh, there at the revival meeting, the preacher that night preached uh, from John 3.16. Plain, simple, little, little message, gospel message. Going home, I, I said something to her about, you know, that it's kind of a strange message, you know, for a revival meeting. You know, after all, in a revival meeting, you know, you want lightning and thunder and excitement and, you know. Well, she didn't say anything. And I really thought to myself, well, you know, there's no way that I should have been criticizing God's man. I shouldn't have said anything critical of that message at all. And I couldn't understand why she was upset. And we got home and it was quiet the rest of the evening and went to bed. And and I don't know, it was sometime after we went, went to bed that I, I heard her crying. And I thought, Lord, surely I didn't make her that mad. And I said something to her, and she told me, she said, 
I'm not saved. There's an old song that says, Once in the stillness of the late midnight hour, I felt the presence of God's saving power. I fell on my knees and I cried to Him there, O merciful Savior, hear a lost sinner's prayer. Well, to make a long story short, that night, that night she did trust Christ as her Savior. Now, she was a good pastor's wife before that. That's why it was so shocking to me. I thought, wow, I, how can this be? But she knew in her heart. And let me tell you, I'm, I'm just convinced that God put this message on my heart for a reason. That's why I, you don't understand, you can't understand how difficult it is for me to have the benediction and for us to leave this building when I'm just convinced in my heart there are people here, church members and some that are not church members, people that have never truly been born again. And if you die today, you're going to split hell wide open. And Satan's about to get victory again because you got in your mind, if I can just get out of here, boy, I, you know, I can get away from this, I'll be all right. No, you won't be all right because let me tell you, I serve a God whose spirit's going to follow you home. When you go to bed, he's going to get in bed with you. You try to go to sleep, he's going to haunt you. There's no way God's going to let up on you. The only relief you're going to get it's when you come to the cross of Jesus Christ and put your trust in Him and settle it once for all. Why wouldn't you do that right here, right now, this morning? We're going to sing this next stanza of the song. This is your opportunity. Would you come?